Welcome to the Content Strategy Experts podcast brought to you by Scriptorium. Since 1997, Scriptorium has helped companies manage, structure, organize, and distribute content in an efficient way. In this episode, we talk about the Content Ops Edited Collection, Content Operations from Start to Scale. Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah O'Keefe. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Carlos Evia to our podcast today. Based at Virginia Tech, Dr. Evia is a professor of communication, associate dean for transdisciplinary initiatives, and chief technology officer in the College of Liberal Arts and Human Sciences. He's also director of the Academy of Transdisciplinary Studies and affiliated with the Virginia Tech Centers for Human Computer Interaction and Communicating Science, and also a member of the stakeholder committee for the Virginia Tech Center for Humanities. In his copious free time, aside from these things. He has been involved with work on DITA standards and especially the Lightweight DITA initiative. So Carlos, welcome aboard. I'm I'm glad you found 20 minutes or so (laughs) to join us here. Hello, Sarah Keefe. It's been a while, so good to catch up with you. It is good to catch up with you. So tell us about this new content ops book. You spearheaded it, and I guess I should mention that I, about a million years ago, contributed to it. Uh, I don't actually remember what I wrote, so this could be a problem. So tell us about the book. Well, it's new. It's new to the world because it's coming out next month. And by next month, I mean October of 2023. But it's a book that has been about 10 years in the making. And some sections of the book really read like creative nonfiction because there are characters that are people in real life. And surprise, you are one of those characters because... This book started, the idea for the book started some 10 years ago when we will meet at conferences. And I don't even remember what happened first. If I invited you to come visit my class here at Virginia Tech, or if I saw you at the STC summit and I was like, oh, wow, she's very smart. I have to invite her to come to my class. But I don't know. I guess we were already chatting and talking to each other. I cannot claim that we were friends. I would dare to say that now we're friends. We've had many meals together, (laughs) family involved, so I guess that counts as friends. I certainly Um, hope so. So you and Alan Pringle in Scriptorium publish a very handy book that I used for many, many years in my classes, Technical Writing 101. And you had three editions? Yeah. Yeah. So after the third edition, I started chatting with you on on Twitter when it was called Twitter and not X or whatever it's called now. And I said, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we write a new version of that book? Because I have been using it in my college level classes for many years and I have ideas on, you know, how to expand it, how to improve it. And we have been talking about it for many years. And then finally, before the pandemic in 2019, we were together at a conference in in your neighborhood. It was in Durham. And we sat down and we said, okay, let's finally start thinking about it. And we made an outline and then we both realized that we could not call ourselves technical writers and that we could not write another edition of a book called Technical Writing 101 because what we were doing was way more than just technical writing. Yes, of course, what paid the bills was doing technical writing, but you were doing more sophisticated things. I was teaching more sophisticated things that were not just writing about technical subjects. So we brainstorm brainstorm about many ideas on what do we call it? 
And we ended up with, how about content operations? That's a thing. And people are talking about content ops. And then the pandemic hit. And when the pandemic hit, everything stopped. And I remember that we had nothing better to do. We will get into endless Zoom conversations. And we started inviting people. And we invited Patrick Bosek to chat with us about it. And he said, wait a minute. If you're talking about content operations, we have to bring Rahel Bailey and we brought Rahel, and I guess at the time, the idea was that we were going to have a book with four authors, and you, you were going to write some chapters, and I was going to write some chapters, and Rahel was going to write the introduction, and Patrick was going to write something. And then we were like, what if we invite more people? And we started making a list of topics that we wanted to cover, and we ended up inviting more people, and this is where we are. The book became an edited collection with several chapters written by experts in industry who had something to say about how content operations is impacting the work that they do, not just in our home neighborhood of technical communication, but also in marketing and other forms of more persuasive content. And finally, the book, after those delays, and there were a couple other delays that we can talk about later, and we will talk about those later. Finally, it's coming out next month and i was able to see a draft of the cover i think i shared with you the yep, draft of yep. the cover and yeah it's coming i said oh yeah important thing to mention this is going to be a, a free book we're not going to become rich and famous with this book because we decided that we wanted to make the content in the book accessible for everybody who is interested in learning about content operations so it's going to be published as an open access book by virginia tech publishing so I think this means that if you want an electronic copy of it, it will be freely available. And if you insist on print, then presumably people will have to pay to get the actual physical print edition. That is correct. And uh, I, I don't think the print version will be an on-demand print service and it's not going to be mm -hmm. very expensive, but there will be, I think, EPUB and PDF versions that will be downloadable from the Virginia Tech Publishing website. Yeah, and I appreciate that, you know, Virginia Tech Publishing did this because, of course, academic publishing is notorious for, you know, these $500 science textbooks. And this they're apparently doing it all wrong, and I appreciate that. So, so this we is didn't, great. We didn't want to go in that direction on purpose because we know, based on the kind of books that you have published with Scriptorium, the kind of work that I have published about data and lightweight data, that we have readers in parts of the world that, they just cannot buy a book, but they're very interested in these topics. And that's why we, and I appreciate that you and all the other people who make contributions to the book accepted and signed the agreements to have this be released as open access with the awareness that there won't be any sweet money coming to you in royalties for the chapters that you contributed to this book. Well, I've, I've done a number of commercial books that had, you know, royalty agreements associated with them. And I can assure you that the, the delta between that and what we're doing with this book is far smaller than, than you might hope. I mean, it's just, it's never been a big moneymaker. So in addition to Rahel and Patrick, I don't want to leave anybody out, but I did want to mention that we brought in Kevin Nichols to talk about customer experience and content ops. Jeffrey McIntyre is dealing with personalization. We've got Lloyd Searle on localization and content ops. Kate Kenyon 
did a really good chapter on governance. And then we've got some really interesting forewords and epilogues and afterwards from some other luminaries in the in the industry. So it was a really fun project to work through. Yeah, I'm very grateful that it started during the pandemic and I will just email people that some of them we knew from conferences, some of them we didn't know, and somebody will make a recommendation and I will knock on their virtual doors and be like, hi, I have this project that is going to be free and you won't be making any money out of it, but people will know about content operations. Do you want to write something? And they said yes. So that's that was very generous. So the intent here is to put a stake in the ground and sort of say, okay, this is what we think. This is where we think content operations is and what it is and how it connects to all these other aspects of content, you know, of, I want to say communication, but you know, how, what it looks like to have a content life cycle that has all these tentacles into all these other pieces and parts, you know, customer experience is a great example because, you know, once you know what your customer journey needs to look like, you can connect that to, and thus I need this kind of content and therefore I need this kind of a content life cycle. Who's, who's the target audience for this? Who do you think should be reading this book? Well, the way that we started conceiving the idea and what eventually became the book, and, and it goes back to when I first met you and I invited you to come and visit my class. And, and again, you were very generous to drive all the way from Durham to Blacksburg to talk to a class of 20 students who were learning about data. And I didn't pay you. I just bought you dinner. And and I really thank you for that. That was like, gosh, how many years ago? 13 years ago, something like that. When I was learning and putting in practice the things that I learned when I was in, in graduate school and also my experience being a technical writer in industry, I always applied the things that I knew to my classes. And I was reading and doing the traditional approach of uh, exposing myself to new ideas, going to conferences. But I realized early on in my career as a professor, which I've been doing this gig for like 23 years now, I don't (laughs) tell anybody, that one of the best ways to bring fresh ideas into the classroom was to invite guest lecturers. And in particular, in the case of of technical communication and, and, and the type of technical content, enabling content that we do, I realized that bringing guest lecturers from industry and particularly consultants was the best way, in my opinion, to expose my students to practices and knowledge that were not in written textbooks, that were not even in academic journal articles, because they were not being, that was not the work of people who were in academia. So I think the book is structured like that, is a series of the equivalent of a guest lecture, somebody who comes to your classroom, in the case of people in academia, and is going to be presenting their ideas and give you some pointers on how to implement this into your content work. And on the other side of the spectrum, we have people in industry, and this will also be the equivalent of having somebody who is a guest and comes to give a presentation about a new topic that you know people might be interested in. And from the work that Rahel and I were doing for a couple of years when we were working on our chapters for the book, we realized that there's a lot of interest from many corners of the content universe on the, on the topic of content ops or content operations, be it because people 
thing that is related to DevOps or design ops or many other other ops that are out there, or because people want to get an operational model on how to tackle enterprise level content. So if you're in academia, what I hope is that this book helps you expose your students and yourself to perspectives from experts in industry when it comes to technical content and marketing content and many other aspects of persuasive and enabling content. And if you're in industry, I hope that this also helps you continue your learning or start expanding your learning on topics related to the content lifecycle that go beyond just planning how to do things in a content strategy, but really developing a good governance model for content operations that really keeps everything, we hope, under control. But we know that things are never going to be under control, and that's when we're probably going to have to write a new book in in a few (laughs) years. Well, it's yeah, I mean, it's funny that you talk about the intersection of academia and, you know, industry or practice. I mean, first of all, I live in Durham, North Carolina, so Virginia Tech is actually not that far, and it's this really pretty drive through the mountains, so no particular trouble there. But I think the really important thing about this is that the work that you're doing at Virginia Tech, paying attention to this question of how do we apply, how do we look at what people are doing you know, out there in the world, and then intersect that with the rigor of the academic inquiry and practice and, and all the rest of it, I think is really important and unusual. There's not actually very many professors. There's a few, but there's not very many academics out there that are looking at this kind of information through a practical lens in addition to you know the study of rhetoric and all these other underpinnings that I think are important to the practice of whether it's technical communication or any kind of communication. So I'm always happy to come and talk to students. They <laughs> they have a habit of asking questions that I can't answer because they are much better grounded really than I am in the theory, mm-hmm. right? I know an awful lot about how to make things happen, yeah. but anything I've learned about the theory that's underlying it is is kind of incidental to, to what I've done. So it's always interesting to hear those voices and hear people talk about the research that they're doing, you know, especially the grad students, but everybody. Yeah. And the questions that they're asking as they're getting all this foundational learning, which, and you know, you talk about being a professor for a while, it is very, very unusual for somebody in our age cohort to, we've had a longstanding argument about who's older, but we won't, <laughs> we won't get into that um, just now. But you know, we fall into the same generation, certainly. And I think, I think our birthdays are like a year apart or something yeah, dumb. Yeah. And I think we decided I'm older, although for that, a while that, I thought you were yes, older and that yes. was awesome. That, anyway. That might, that might be correct. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is that for us, you know, a generation ago when we were in, in school, in college, there wasn't a whole lot of any of this. Yeah. There wasn't really the study of TechCom or... I mean, there was certainly rhetoric, but not rhetoric as applied to tech comm and enabling communications. And so people like me tend to be very poorly grounded in the <laughs> the academics and the, you know, the preceding research that has gone into this. So I appreciate, you know, being able to do that. So how do you define what's your sort of best definition of content operations and how that fits into the world? Well, the the book actually 
borrows Rahel's definition. Mm-hmm. But I think I have a, a, a coffee mug here with her definition that she that she mailed me. And she talks about you have your content strategy. And I guess at this point, people kind of know what a content strategy is. I think the listeners of this podcast need to know about content strategy or maybe they're interested in content strategy. And that's the plan of how do you develop, maintain, publish, sunset, or revitalize content. So Rahel's definition says that content operations is the implementation of that strategy. So it's like a good example that she has been using for years is that think about if you're an architect and you make the blueprints for a house. That's the strategy. That's the plan. But ain't nobody telling you in those plans how to live in the house that you have to change the air filters of the air conditioning, that you have to clean the toilets. Nobody's telling you that. So that's the operational part of it. And that's the content operations component. Other people, sometimes I'm in that camp, see content operations as bigger than that and including the process of developing, implementing, and revising the content strategy. So it's I think it's a combination of knowing who is available, what is available in resources, and what is missing or what's needed to really keep a healthy life cycle of content that includes the planning, that includes the actual writing, creating, I was going to say filming, but nobody uses film anymore, the actual recording of videos and audio, and the publishing and the evaluation, assessment, and then making new versions or just putting to sleep content that nobody cares about. So it's really about how to live in that house that you created with all the daily and monthly and yearly transactions that need to happen that when they sold you the house, when they sold you the idea of the house, there was just were not considered. But based on the work that from experts like, like you and the people who wrote chapters for the book, we are offering these lessons that say, hi, we have lived in houses and we know how to take a look at those operational components that you might not even consider now that you're starting your strategy. So I think that's a complicated way to tell you what I see as part of, of operations, but it's heavily influenced by the work of Rahel Bailey, who was very generous to write the introduction to the book. And then last year, when the book was almost ready, like this close to being ready last year, Rahel and I sat down and said, you know, this is missing something. It's missing a chapter that talks directly to content developers, not their managers, not people who are at the high level of strategy or the high level of governance, but people who are actually going to create the content. How does content operations can help you or create challenges for you? So Rahel and I went into a months-long adventure of writing this long chapter that at one point we decided this might be a separate book altogether where we created this new chapter that is included now in in the final version of the book that is speaking directly to people who are going to be creating content and how thinking about the work that you're doing as part of a system and not just I'm here in my lonely cubicle or working from home because hashtag remote work forever and I don't talk to anybody else. So that's I think that's the whole process of thinking about operations in in a systems approach. 
Yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, I think that looking back at some of the stuff back in the olden days, there was really this concept that as a content creator, you know, technical writer, whatever, I had ownership of a particular book or document or set of documents, but it was like, I'm the writer of the admin guide and you are the writer of the user guide and I'm going to go learn admin things and write them down and you're going to go learn user things and write them down and then we're going to have this big complicated print production process and you know I I I know an awful lot of things about press checks and blue lines that I haven't used in 25 years so I used to know things about blue lines and press checks but I think one of the reasons that we really need content ops is because the concept of authorship has fragmented, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not writing a 500 page admin guide. In fact, it's pretty unlikely that the organization is writing a 500 page mm -hmm. admin guide. We might be writing 500 topics worth of admin stuff, but I'm writing a hundred of them and you're writing a hundred of them and a couple other people are contributing bits and pieces and then we put it all together as the sort of, here's the help for the admin person, mm -hmm. and we put it online. So the print production process is gone. The press check process is gone. The physical mm -hmm. production is gone. And we are fragmented in the sense that nobody has the overarching view of what is this set of content. Yeah. And because that doesn't exist, right? Because there's not me as the owner of this book, which by the way, on it from a psychological point of view introduces a whole set of other complications. But because that owner doesn't really exist anymore, our systems have to be better. Yeah. Right. So that the five of us or the 27 of us that are all writing three topics can contribute in a consistent and useful manner. Our systems, your systems don't have to be as good when you're relying on individuals. Right. And it might Single. be that, and it might be that the system has people who are in charge of ensuring that the user experience of those mm -hmm. who need the content is going to be good and satisfy their information needs. And that's not the job of the developers. I mean, as the writer, as the creator of videos or audio, it might not be your job to ensure that whatever website app product comes out of that machine that generates the content is going to satisfy the needs of a human being. And it might be that it's not your job as the creator to be in charge of managing that whole process. So that's why the systems approach of thinking and, and, and being aware, it doesn't have to be that happens at the big enterprise level, as you know, because that's the job that you do every day at Scriptorium. Even small organizations, I don't want to say corporations, have adopted these models of creating reusable chunks of content that you create and based on the metadata and the connections that they have behind the scenes are going to be reassembled in different deliverables for the needs of different audiences and in different contexts and in different models. So it's not just the work of a lonely writer. It's a combination of approaches. And I think that content operations really takes a look at that life cycle. And like you have said before, not every implementation of content operations is going to be super high tech and mega efficient. You might have your content operations approach that is based on the budget that you have and the scale that you have. And it might not be the prettiest, but at least you have an idea and you want to have, not that you can always achieve that, but you want to have some sort of control 
over your content publishing structure instead of letting whatever. I'll just write a piece of paper and, and see how far it goes if I send it like a paper airplane. So, yeah. So you mentioned the, you know, the machine and the systems and I don't think we're allowed to have podcasts this year without talking about AI. Mm -hmm. uh, so do you think that the, I, I'm trying to avoid using the word fad. Do you think that the rise of AI and especially this sort of 2023, all of a sudden AI is everywhere and everything is AI enabled and everybody's talking about AI. Do you think that's going to change content ops? How is it going to change content ops? What do you think? I think it has already changed it. Remember I told you that there were a, a couple of moments in which we had to stop the publication of the book and revise it? Well, the first one was, I told you, Rahel and I decided that we wanted to write a chapter that talked directly to content developers. And the second one was that Patrick Bosek and I and, and you were in one of those meetings. We sat down and we said, we cannot publish a book on content operations without talking about AI and particularly ChatGPT, because it was the boom of everybody's talking about ChatGPT and all the conference presentations were about ChatGPT. So the book was already going to print when we said, wait a minute, we need to open it and revise Patrick's chapter, which is about the technology that supports content operations and include a statements about ChatGPT. So I honestly think that artificial intelligence has already impacted and changed the work of content operations. It might not have affected, uh, like you said, all the content operations implementations of the world because some might be uh, with limited budget and limited scale. But I think that uh, there are many use cases that are happening right now. The main consideration is this. It's not about learning to use the tools. It's not about seeing how much money you can invest into having AI create your content. But it's about as the person who supervises and is in charge of the whole operations or the persons, if it's a large team, consider the ethical implications of using artificial intelligence and decide, I'm going to use AI for this, to summarize this, to create this, what are the possibilities that by doing this, I put some of my users at a disadvantage? What are the implications of by doing this, I'm going to completely run my bulldozer over the diversity of my readers, of my users, and I'm going to damage their perception of their interactions with whatever information products I'm creating. So I think the big conversation has to be not... Is AI going to impact content operations or content because it's already impacting it? But how do we supervise and bring this into the cycle of content operations in an approach that doesn't leave people at a disadvantage? And it might be that doesn't leave content creators or content managers at a disadvantage. And it's concentrated on the ethical perspectives on the use, implementation, and feeding of artificial intelligence tools. So I think that's where the conversation is really going to go in, in the near future. That's interesting. And I think additionally to that, you know, the question of trust and reputation, yeah. if you develop a reputation for generating junk, because, you know, I 
asked ChatGPT to write my bio and it made up a bunch of stuff and then I just yeah. used it because why not? But it seems to me that this is going to, and you know, we're already seeing search degrading because of all the AI generated mm -hmm. stuff. So I think in, in addition to the ethical issues, there's some really, really interesting questions around whether the efficiency that you get out of generated content yeah. is the plus of gaining that efficiency greater than the minus of the trust and reputation problems that you're going to have if you're not very, very careful. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, you could generate it and then you can review it and clean it up and fix it, but you just gave back your efficiency gains. Yeah. So then it, is it really a net positive? I do think that gisting and summarizing can be very useful, but I have some real concerns about, you know, when you go in and you tell it to tell me how to operate this medical device. Mm -hmm. First of all, people don't use chat to ask it how to operate a medical device. Okay. But, but if, and when you do, you know, be careful because yeah. it might make some stuff up. And I heard, I can't remember where this was, but yesterday I heard somebody say that on a podcast I was listening to, and, and when I figure out who it was, I'll, I'll dig it out and I'll put it in the show notes. But essentially that we, when we create enabling content for new products, we are in the business of creating new content. And ChatGPT does not do a very good job of creating new content. It only reissues what it has. And so if you're creating something brand new, somebody has to do that work. And I don't think the person or thing doing that work is going to be an AI-enabled large language model. There are many tests and forms of evaluating the content created by human beings or created, I mean, it's not really created, it's assembled by artificial intelligence. But, you know, I, I am old school when it comes to some of my metrics. And I know that some people have challenged this. And I know that some people have come up with better uh, approaches for evaluating the content, the quality of technical content. But I go back to IBM's developing quality technical information. And I want to be sure that the content, either created or written or produced by human beings or by artificial intelligence, is easy to use, easy to understand, and easy to find. And I send people back to reading the second edition of IBM's DQTI, and that is pretty valid today because you can have a machine generate paragraphs and paragraphs of content, and you can have very nicely machine-generated data tags that give it some structure, and you can have ChatGPT help you do the XLT to do a beautiful HTML5 transformation. Your content might look like it's good, but it has to be measured by, you know, is this really helping human beings? Because other than otherwise, it's, it's just garbage, regardless of how pretty the code behind the scenes is, which is not necessarily that pretty because ChatGPT doesn't know much about data and it doesn't know how to establish the difference between a task and a general topic. But that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's probably a good place to leave it. We've got, so we, I think we've raised more questions than we've answered. That's what I do. But the book is going to be out shortly, we hope. So October, 2023, and we'll include a link in the show notes that will point you over to wherever it is that you'll be able to order or pre-order it from. So we'll set all of that up. I remembered who it was that talked about new content. It was Jack Molasani in oh, our yeah. podcast from a couple of weeks ago. So I'll add that link. <laughs> and Carlos, thank you. This has been really interesting as always. Glad to see you. 
And sounds like we need to talk some more about what's going on here. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Content Strategy Experts podcast brought to you by Scriptorium. For more information, visit scriptorium.com or check the show notes for relevant links. Thank you.